This episode of Navarra Live is made possible by your donations, just like everything else we do at Navarra Media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month, or whatever you can afford, in order to fund independent, truthful media. Just go to navaramedia.com forward slash support to set up a regular donation of any size. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you. Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. On tonight's show, I'm joined by the brilliant sociologist, I must say, Dan Evans. Dan, how are you doing? Yeah, thanks for having me, mate. Great to be back. Well, it's great to have you back. Uh, for people who aren't already familiar with our interview, they should check that out, our interview with you and your book, uh, which focuses on the rise of the petty bourgeois. I have to say, Dan, since, since you came on to Navarra, I've seen you write for the New Statesman. I've seen you on BBC Radio 4. Was that all in the pipes anyway, or was your sort of virtuoso interview the, the, the difference? It was all in the pipeline, but I've been validated, I think, by Navarra and the great Aaron Bastani, so uh, thank you very much. We are nothing if we are not a launchpad for brilliant thinkers on the left, uh, on the left rather, such as yourself. Uh, coming up tonight, Gillian Keegan is still struggling to defend the government over the crumbling schools scandal. The Royal Mail are considering saving money by scrapping posts on Saturdays and how the truth about Prince Andrew is being hidden by the British state. Stay tuned for all of that. First story. The Tories' energy bill is back in the House of Commons today but a backbench rebellion along with opposition support has already forced the government to relax its effective ban on onshore wind farms. The amendment to the bill was brought by more than 20 backbenchers, including Liz Truss and former Tory party chair Jake Berry. It was led by former Energy Secretary Alok Sharma, who said this on Radio 4's Today programme. The current situation we have is that just one objection can prevent a wind farm from being built. I mean, clearly, that is not a community veto. uh, And uh, frankly, I don't think it's a sensible way for a planning system to operate. Uh, The reality is uh, that more onshore wind will help to improve energy security, will help to bring down bills. uh, And therefore, what we need is a sensible and balanced approach to this. And of course, communities should have a say. But the idea that there should be just one objection and you can't have a wind farm, uh, I think that is outdated. And when you talk of community benefits, do you mean a discount on their bills if they exceed, uh, if they agree? Uh, yes, I think you can have a discount uh, on, on their bills. Uh, I mean, there are, there are other examples from uh, Scotland, for instance, uh, where um, uh, you see uh, incentives given uh, to people uh, to have a broadband installed in, in homes, uh, you know, various sort of community assets being uh, being made available. So I think there are a range of things, and the government has consulted on this, but it is absolutely key, I think, that there has to be a very direct linkage between communities being able to take, uh, willing to take onshore wind farms, and then getting that direct benefit. Now, the current rule where a single complaint can halt onshore wind development dates back to 2015, when David Cameron faced a pushback against green policies by his backbenchers, and it had a massive impact. Between 2011 and 2015, planning permission was granted for 435 new turbines. But between 2016 and 2020, that fell to just 16, a drop of 96%. Commenting on the change to the rule, levelling up Secretary Michael Gove said this, We are adjusting the policies so that local authorities can more flexibly address the planning impact of onshore wind projects as identified by local communities on which we intend to publish further guidance. We have heard accounts that current policy has been applied in such a way that a very limited number of objections, and even at times objections of single individuals, have been taken as showing a lack of community backing. This is not the policy intent. And as a result of today's policy change, it will now be important that local decision makers are able to take a more balanced approach, considering the views of communities as a whole. The move is a massive, massive backtrack for Rishi Sunak and is likely to cause an even greater rift amongst Tories when it comes to green policies, which are, let's be honest, already very controversial. When Sunak ran for Tory leader last summer, he promised this. Wind energy will be an important part of our strategy, but I want to reassure communities that as Prime Minister, I would scrap plans to relax the ban on onshore wind in England, instead focusing on building more turbines offshore. Asunak is in the difficult position of having to satisfy a parliamentary party split on net zero targets and green policies in general. 
and with the Conservatives facing a bruising at the next general election, many MPs are fearful that local resistance to green measures will see them hurt even more. The Guardian reports this example of precisely that phenomenon. Alessia Kearns, the Conservative MP for Rutland and Melton in the East Midlands, is campaigning against a large solar farm in her constituency and has tabled an amendment for a wider block on that form of renewable energy, solar energy. This follows plans by the Liz Trust government to ban them from most farmland. Kearns has tabled a move to limit large ground-based solar farms. The industry says her plan, this is key... Her plan would add £5 billion to household bills. The cost would add £180 per household to energy bills, according to the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. The climate sceptic chair of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, Craig McKinley, has tabled 63 amendments. Amongst them are amendments weakening the government's commitment to renewables and boosting the use of even more oil and gas. Dan, let's focus for a moment on the politics of this. It's another major problem for Rishi Sunak, isn't it? He promised one thing after another in terms of what he could deliver as PM when he wanted the Tory membership to vote for him. And repeatedly, he's doing the opposite. Where do you think this leaves him, particularly on green issues? Because we saw with you, Les, that the Tories, the Tory leadership, the Tory management at the top of the party view this as a Hail Mary kind of policy area for them with regards to their base anyway. And yet here, they're actually making a big difference with the recent past. Yeah, irreconcilable tensions within the Tory party between sort of those who are committed to a green transition or ostensibly committed to a green transition and you know the sort of uh, the traditional conservative base, which has often been uh, often tended towards nimbyism. But it's also, uh, I think, you know, the, the deeper issues are between those who are funded by the fossil fuel industry and those who aren't. So if you look, the Conservatives have had millions of donations from the fossil fuel industry, which obviously has an impact on uh, this opposition to wind energy. If you look at back to 2015, when Cameron um, put, says he's going to start winding down wind farms, it, I thought, well, this is Cameron pandering to his sort of NIMBY base. But actually, it's Cameron... Uh, Wants to wanting to go uh, full throttle into fracking. You know, he wanted to go into fracking, um, and so there's there's questions we asked there about you know if, you know if we follow the money, who is funding this opposition? Um, but more broadly, you know, beyond the Tory party, it does raise really interesting questions about the green transition because if we want to build wind energy and solar energy on a massive scale, I mean, some environmental uh, scientists are arguing we need 3.8 million wind turbines built across the world, this is going to entail a massive uh, change to our built environment and, and to, to, to local geographies because we're going to have huge amounts of wind turbines. And those changes, which are very important, you know, we do need to do this, are going to be very, very contested. You know, people are going to uh, complain about solar farms. They're going to complain about wind farms. If there's like, if you look at America, there have been huge wind farm developments that have just been abandoned, Cape Wind think of Massachusetts. And so, you know, this is something that we're going to see a lot more of, you know, as, as we transition to, to net zero, these these tensions between the need uh, for, for a green transition and local people in areas that are going to have these things like wind farms and solar farms. This is the future of politics, I think. Yeah. And also what Alex Sharma said there about how, look, we need to have more renewable energy and people that have it in their backyard will benefit from it in terms of the bottom line, in terms of their bills being cheaper. Common sense politics, we've had to wait so long for it. And also, what I find fascinating with this stuff, Dan, and what you said about fracking and the sort of political economic interest behind that, the really astute point, is that the register of the culture war has just percolated every single issue for the Tories. So, for instance, electric vehicles, right now they're very expensive, but in the medium to long term, they will be much cheaper to run than petrol vehicles. And they're just better performing. They will last longer, easier to maintain, just because of the technology. Uh, but you can't use those arguments. And it's the same here. You know, they, the, the Tories resist things like wind and solar because these are just bad. They mean bills will be higher. Even when you could when you can substantively point out, no, this will mean lower bills, they struggle. And to be clear, once we master the storage issue, renewable energy will be much, much, much cheaper than fossil fuels. Now, that bill is still being debated in the Commons as we speak, uh, with MPs set to vote on the amendments uh, from seven tonight. So keep an eye out for that. Next story. Does anyone ever say, you know what, you've done a good job because everyone else has sat on their 
and done nothing. No, no, no signs of that, no? That was Education Secretary Gillian Keegan. Watching Gillian Keegan caught in a hot mic moment yesterday. She's since apologised for her rather colourful language. But today she's appeared on Jeremy Vine's BBC Radio 2 show to explain herself. I know you've apologised for it, but, but um, just take us through what you meant by that. Well, I mean, I was a bit frustrated because the interview, uh, the, the interview beforehand, he basically was, you know, trying to pin everything on me. You know, why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done that? Why haven't you done the other? And actually, RAC has been around for a long time, since the 1950s to 1994. Um, so so that, that was a bit frustrating because basically, you know, the Department for Education, I think, has, has, has actually done a really good job here. Done a really good job. By the way, I think that's totally reasonable. Why should the education secretary, who's the boss of education for the whole country, be held responsible for what's going on in schools on her watch? Sure, we've discovered 52 schools that could collapse on the heads of children any moment, and her, her department's known that since at least, at least 2018. But pointing the finger at Keegan alone is just unfair. Why is nobody blaming the laws of physics or gravity or the ghosts of 1960s engineers? And anyway, it turns out Keegan was on holiday when it all kicked off. You went on a holiday in Spain from August the 25th to August the 31st. Was that a mistake? Well, when I went on holiday, I mean, to be honest, for the whole of the summer, um, obviously I had to sort out industrial action, then I had to do the A-levels, then I had to do the GCSE. So the first time I could go on so holiday... So we should, be, we should that, feel sorry for Not at you. all. And I don't expect anyone to feel sorry for me. I'm certainly not getting that vibe from you. But was it only in August that Keegan first knew about the imminent dangers of RAC? Hmm. According to Organisation Surveyors to Education, the government gave schools a, quote, urgent deadline to report back on the presence of potentially dangerous RAC in their buildings in February this year. That was a long time before Gillian Keegan's August holiday. And now East Anglia Bylines has reported this. A reliable source has informed us that in early February, two months after the risk level was raised too high, Education Secretary Gillian Keegan remarked, quote, we just need to keep the lid on this for two years and then it's someone else's problem. How many politicians does that apply to in Britain over the last 40 years? The Department for Education denies that Keegan made this statement. Of course, not everything can be laid at the feet of Gillian Keegan. The issue dates back to 2010, when under George Osborne's austerity measures, then-Education Secretary Michael Gove scrapped Labour's school rebuilding scheme. And according to education newspaper Schools Week, that had a direct impact on school closures this week. They found that 11 schools that would have been rebuilt under the Labour programme are now closed due to RAC. Six of those schools are in Essex alone an area hard hit by the crisis. The Tories replaced Labour's school rebuilding programme with its own much smaller priority building programme. But 10 of the 11 schools that have failed to be selected for a re rebuild in the last 13 years, and one has only very recently been chosen. Even if it's her own party's history and government that puts Keegan in the position she's in now, her responses show a serious misjudgment of the public mood. An LBC One caller told her this story about their child's school. About six weeks before the summer holidays, uh, D of E closed our school overnight. We got a notification, seven o'clock in the evening, school's closed tomorrow. Don't know what we're going to do about it. Something to do with the structure in the roof. So, so, so we had... Story. When was this before the summer holidays? How many this weeks? was about six weeks before the summer holidays, six so weeks. just after the half term before yeah, exactly. that. So yeah. they knew it. They, you know, they knew this was coming, and they've just mishandled it. So what we were told is right overnight, schools closed. Don't know what we're going to do, um, but you know, kids can't come in. So we had to find childcare. Well, I just missed work for three days mm. because we don't have any support or childcare locally. So. Um, and our headmaster, he's a fantastic guy. He got out in front of it. He erected marquees on the playing field. And within three days, the kids were back being educated. It wasn't ideal, but, you know, it worked. Mm. Over that period and over the summer holiday, they have spent thousands of pounds correcting whatever it was that was wrong with the roof. Um, and our kids walked in Friday morning for their first day back. And I'm thinking, whew, we've yeah. escaped this rack malarkey. Um, and then yesterday, eight o'clock in the evening, we receive an email. Sorry, 
D of E have stepped in and they've closed us down. Again. Despite, yet again, uh, despite all the work that we've done repairing whatever structural, um, and I think they haven't said it was rack, but I think it was rack. Looking back over the information, well, sporadic information. For the last twelve well, weeks. Well, they said the school said that the D of E have changed the guidelines yet again, bearing in mind what's gone on in the media recently, and I'm thinking, well. It's just an absolute shambles. So I am seethingly angry with Gillian. How dare she want congratulations for the shambles that she has overseen? How dare she think she's doing a good job? She is, I mean, they're all blooming useless, aren't they? They all need to be booted out. But to to be so incredulous and say, oh, well, you know, we've done a fantastic job and no one's congratulating us. Sorry, it's been a nightmare from, from my point of view and our poor headmaster. Who would have children in the UK in 2023? Who, who would have them? What sensible person? I mean, I, I say that as somebody, my, my wife's expecting a child in 10 weeks' time. But maybe I'm not that sensible. But when you break it down, expensive childcare, benefits aren't particularly good. If you happen to fall out of work and you've got more than two kids, good luck to you. And now... Your child might not be able to go to school, and if they can't, then you might have to make your own arrangements, and that may mean you take time off work. If you can afford to do that, many people can't. Just crazy. Just the most basic operation of society reproducing itself is people having kids, being able to care for kids, as well as, of course, being able to care for the elderly um, and those who can't care for themselves. The most basic elementary function of society. We can't do it increasingly because the government is so crap at doing the basics. Care, hospitals education. In another tone-deaf intervention, Keegan tweeted out that, quote, most schools will be unaffected. That's good to know. Well, okay. Critically important that we don't have thousands of schools in this situation. Uh, good to know that most of them aren't about to collapse, Gillian. That tweet was accompanied by this graphic. As you can see there, most schools unaffected. Breaking news. Thank goodness for that. Uh, that left an open goal for Labour, who, credit where credit is due, followed up with this. Most beachgoers not eaten by Big Shark. Jaws update. Brought to you by the Mayor of Amity Island. Of course, the Mayor of Amity Island is the gentleman who is central to the film Jaws. The inference there being that Jaws isn't really a problem because most people aren't being eaten by sharks. It's kind of reasonable point to make. Dan, what do you make of all this with regards to, again, not just the... The failure here, obviously uh, dozens of schools being closed, but then the, the follow-up and how that looks politically, I don't like to use the word optics, but let's use it, the political optics of the follow-up with Gillian Keegan at its heart. Well, it's just an incredible story. You know, I was desperately Googling the type of concrete that's used to try to learn about it, but then you know, I realised that's not, that's not important at all. The, the, the issue is that, you, you know, you couldn't be a more damning indictment of modern Britain. You know, schools with children in there are literally literally collapsed and I was reading about one school where a huge, a huge block of con concrete just fell just collapsed in the assembly hall and, you know people were lucky that, that the children weren't injured it's just it's just an incredible indictment of of this this broken country that we're living with we don't you know we've got crumbling schools crumbling public public infrastructure sewerage systems that don't work you know because all because of a lack of a lack of investment and then to top it off you've got politicians who are who are furious if anyone has the temerity to, to suggest they're not doing a good job. It, it just sums everything up. It sums up uh, where we are after you know years and years of Tory austerity. The, as you said, the very basics of our society, you know, transport, you know, education, childcare, like everyone's lives are just getting harder and harder and harder. And then we've got a political class. I mean, I would like, you know, I'd like to say that there's going to be a massive blowback, but this is the, this is the problem, you know, that there's, there's new, countless examples of this, you know, pumping sewage into the into the waterways, you know, schools collapsing, but there doesn't seem to be any, you know, there's no accountability. No one's held accountable. No, you know, it, it's just it's just a total mess. And do you think with um, Gillian Keegan, her tone, do you think they've given up? I mean, that's how it comes across to me partly. I think, I think you know, she probably isn't that politically ambitious, so I need to look out for my own hide and, and make a good impression here because, you know, I might be a more senior member of the cabinet and, 18 months' time. I, I suspect she isn't thinking that because there won't be a Tory government. What's your read on this? Has the feel of the Conservative front bench changed a bit? Yeah, well, that quote about, you know, let's hold on, it won't be our problem anymore. It's just, you know, they're saying they're quite a bit out loud. As you said, over the years, over the, over the centuries, you know, how many politicians will have said that, you know, 
almost you'd imagine almost all of them. But yeah, there is an element of defeatism sometimes when you look at these Tories. I mean, and if you're a cynic, you know, you could argue that they're they're quite happy to spend five years, uh, four years, sorry, in the wilderness uh, and let Labour inherit this atrocious uh, mess that the Tories have created. And, you know, we know that the, the Labour Party plans aren't particularly ambitious, as you said, you know, fixing schools on a smaller scale. Um, and, yeah, for, for people like Keegan, but also for a lot of these Tory politicians, I mean, they can get more, they can get more lucrative jobs in the private sector. So, yeah, as soon as they feel some heat, I'm sure a lot of them just think, well, you know, I'm out of here. I'll go and do some consultancy for a bit and then I'll, and then I'll come back. Next story. Birmingham City Council is the largest local authority in Europe, but now it's run out of cash and effectively declared itself bankrupt. The council has issued a Section 114 notice, meaning there can be no new spending except for protecting vulnerable people and delivering statutory services. So how did it get to this point? Well, the city's crisis has been a long time in the making. In 2012, the Supreme Court found in favour of 174 mostly female employees of the council who had brought a claim against it. The employees were caterers, teaching assistants and cleaners who'd not been paid bonuses that had been paid to workers in more male-dominated sectors like refuse collection. To avoid defending further cases, the council reached an agreement with the unions that resulted in 11,000 further payouts. To date, the council has paid out £1.1 billion in equal pay claims. To fund that, it sold off the NEC arena, as well as other public assets, in 2014. But this July, it was revealed that it still owed £760 million in pay awards. And that bill is growing at a rate of between 5 and £14 million a month. A month because of repeated delays to processing cases. According to the GMB union, it amounts to the council owing an extra £20,000 with each passing hour. Just extraordinary. The council also owes a further £100 million after it installed a new Oracle IT system that, surprise, surprise, didn't work. Birmingham is now left with an £87 million deficit for this year alone, but it has tried to plug the hole with workers' livelihoods. Just last month, it invited all 10,600 members of staff to quit. The scheme involved a non-negotiable severance package, but also meant that workers might have had to sign away potential future pay claims against the council. Such schemes also have other effects because the worker has resigned rather than been made redundant. They don't have access to benefits. So Birmingham City Council is in a mess, but it isn't clear whose fault that is. A University of Birmingham report from last December reports this on government funding cuts between 2010 and 2020. Government funding has seen such a significant decrease due to austerity policies introduced by successive governments, which have slashed local authority budgets. Birmingham City Council alone had to make austerity cuts of £736 million. That's a drop of nearly 78% of the council's central funding. A further effect of austerity has been a greater demand for council-run services like housing, mental health services, and employment support. Dan, those numbers are extraordinary. This is a long story rolling for, well, the best part of a decade. Uh, but the fact that we've got a council here which is losing, just to repeat, as much as £14 million a month, £20,000 an hour, because they haven't processed historic claims effectively, efficiently, quickly enough, is a huge story, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely enormous. I mean, obviously, Birmingham is a Labour council. For those of us who've uh, lived for most of their lives in the Labour council, uh, news about financial mismanagement won't be particularly new. But obviously, you know, it's not all the council's fault, as you uh, as the statistics show. All the, the, real stati the real problems, you can almost, tra almost always trace them back 2010, you know, when the coalition government comes in and starts squeezing local government funding. Um, so, yeah, it, it, and it's obviously not just Birmingham. You know, I think there's 30 at least councils across England are at risk of bankruptcy, particularly in poorer areas. So this is a, a, a topic that, again, we're going to see more of because of the, the cuts, to, cuts by the Tory government to uh, local authority budgets. Um, what I think is going to be interesting is the response because... 
you know, there are precedents across the world. If you, you know, New York City went bankrupt in 1975, and David Harvey, you know, the, the Marxist, you know, geographer, I think, you know, you, you've spoken to him, Adam, on the show a lot, is Harvey argued that, you know, the bankruptcy of New York City, you know, that was used by financiers to introduce neoliberalism, you know, to discipline the population. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens now, you know, Birmingham going bankrupt, you know, will they ask for bailout, you know, from central government? And if they do, you know, will the bailout come with strings? You know, the Tory government have got the ability now to 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 impose whatever measures they want on Labour-run councils like Birmingham in exchange for bailouts that have been, you know, the, the problems being created by the Tories. So it's it's going to be really interesting to see what happens next. Completely. Uh, this idea of Labour councils being always better than Tory ones is uh, obviously complete nonsense. And I think you're absolutely right to say that, look, there is a historic issue here. And, you know, that probably would have been finessed quite differently had local authorities not really had to deal with the vast majority of austerity in this country since 2010. Delays in paying out compensation for pay discrimination has just about bankrupted Birmingham City Council. But it's not alone. Glasgow City Council has already paid out £770 million to women employees that it discriminated against. One of them, Francis Stoilkovich, told ITV News about the impact of delays to compensation payments. Hundreds of people's died to waiting on payments. My last friend that died was, uh, just before Christmas, the last message I got from her in her dying bed in the hosp hospice was, Francis, I wish I could just live long enough to see my money in the bank for my son. Hundreds of women across the country are now making new claims against councils. In Cumbria, 400 women have lodged claims with arbitration service ACAS, with a further 150 expected to join them. In Coventry, there are 200 claims relating to preferential working practices for male-dominated roles. And in Dundee, there are 400 cases accusing the council of paying better bonuses to joiners, roofers and bricklayers than to cleaners, caterers and carers. The GMB union also says it's collecting evidence of discrimination in 20 further councils. If those claims are successful, it would see compensation bills run into hundreds of millions of pounds. GMB organiser Maddie Wilkinson explained to ITV how the pay claims arise. You're a domestic and you move furniture, you clean around that furniture, you're paid at a really low grade, the lowest grade within the authority. But if you're a male and you move around furniture within the corporate buildings, you paid a hell of a lot more money. Same job, different title. Dan, obviously it's important this historic injustice is um, being rectified, uh, but it's going to mean massive job losses in London, in Birmingham rather, and elsewhere too, <laughs> maybe London as well. Uh, given the scale of this, you know, we've got potentially dozens of councils on the hook. Is that fair? Now, I'm sort of being a bit controversial here because, of course, these women deserve this money. But there are going to be absolutely massive implications for staff, workers, male and female today. What, what would be the ideal way to respond to this? Let's say that you're 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 in charge of this. Keir Starmer puts you in the House of Lords. New Labour government. He says, Dan Evans, I want you to deal with this. What's the Dan Evans response? Well, that's a nice image. Well, maybe one day that will happen. Um, he has to reverse austerity. You know, as long as austerity is in place, and as long as local authorities are having their funding squeezed. You know, as long as there's this devolution of the acts with the responsibility for all these things like housing and health and education being devolved to local authorities without the appropriate funding, you know, it's a Gordian knot. You know, you can't solve this problem. And it's only right that these women are being compensated for being underpaid. You know, it's a, it's a historic travesty that they were underpaid. And actually, if you look at, you know, local authorities now, most of them still engage in really inefficient um forms of employment like you know the uh, agency staff are, uh is an absolutely routine thing you know the council pay millions to to agency workers um rather than just paying the workers they've got fairly but they do that because it's cheaper so the only way you know if starmer comes in the only way to fix this problem is by giving local authorities the, the appropriate funding settlement that'll hopefully and and he'll what they'll have to do obviously is factor in uh these historic claims and say, well, also, we're going to need to put put some money aside for to address these historic injustices. Um, and the councils have to learn, have to learn from these discriminatory employment practices that they're going to come back and bite you uh, in the backside further down the line. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think realistically, uh, you're going to have to have central government pay this, this off. These are big historic, historic liabilities, which I think councils aren't going to be able to cover. Um, and, you know, I think this is going to have to be written off. And, and realistically, let's also be fair to the councils of today. Yes, of course, Birmingham City Council is responsible for the decision to give Oracle £100 million. By the way, why does a city need a £100 million software system? What, what for? None of these work. Sometimes I feel like we're more high-tech than we need to be. Sometimes a pen and paper is okay, guys. You know, a notebook. I think part of this is the consultants coming in saying, no, you want to be big, professional, tech, CEO, private enterprise, spend £100 million on a, on a software system you don't really need. Uh, of course, they should be on the hook for that. But the councillors today and the workers today are not responsible for what was happening 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, however many years ago. Of course, that doesn't mean that these liabilities shouldn't be paid out. Of course, they should. That's fair. That's just. But the idea that councillors today are responsible and should be on the hook, I think is not right. And I think, yeah, central government should pay this off. And, you know, alongside that, of course, reverse austerity at the local level. And as I said already, you know, the lion's share of austerity, cutting public spending, has been enforced at a local level. Really extraordinary. The fabric of this country and how government looks at a local level has fundamentally transformed in the last 13 years. Next story. Earlier this year, the Royal Mail increased the price of a first-class stamp to £1.10. The context for that was claims that industrial action by postal workers had left the group on the brink of insolvency. But like most things which emanate from the mouths of Britain's business class, that was complete garbage. Because in the three years to 2022, the Royal Mail recorded £1.7 billion in profits. Meanwhile, over the last six years, management has paid £884 million in dividends and returned £400 million in, quote, excess cash. The group even spent £210 million buying Canadian trucking giant Rosenau Transport in 2022. But remember, they've got no money. And meanwhile, high inflation meant increasing the cost of stamps above inflation, but giving workers pay rises, well, below inflation. See how it works? And then there was the astronomical executive pay at the organisation. Rico Back was paid millions as CEO while being able to work from home, aka on the banks of a Swiss lake. And no, I'm not joking. And a more recent CEO, Simon Thompson, earned three quarters of a million pounds plus £140,000 in bonuses, despite the company facing an investigation over missed delivery targets. Imagine getting a bonus of £140,000 while being investigated. That would be bizarre in most places, but not in corporate Britain, it turns out. The service has been going backwards too. Last year, Royal Mail announced that all deliveries would be completed by 5pm rather than 4pm. Meanwhile, in 2022, one in four letters was delivered late. So more expensive stamps and later delivery times, but high profits. High executive pay, but falling worker pay. So far, so bad. The story of Royal Mail offering a microcosm of the failures of privatization. But it's about to get even worse because letter deliveries on a Saturday are now under review. The Telegraph writes this. Ofcom has estimated that the change would save Royal Mail up to £225 million a year. Meanwhile, Chairman Keith Williams has previously warned that the company would have to push through, quote, considerable increases in the price of first-class stamps if it is forced to maintain its six-days-a-week delivery obligation. It comes as Royal Mail has been forced to contend with a wave of disruptive strike action. In response, the Royal Mail has said this. The Universal Service Obligation, USO, which currently requires Royal Mail to deliver letters to all 32 million UK addresses six days a week, is outdated and in need of urgent reform. They're saying that, by the way, not the consumer. So we welcome that Ofcom is looking at options for the future of the USO and the recognition that it needs to evolve to reflect the changing needs of postal users. Being required to provide a service that customers have said they no longer need, I certainly do, at significant cost to Royal Mail, increases the threat to the sustainability of the USO. To kill the USO means to keep the USO. Does that make any sense? We want to work with all stakeholders, including Ofcom, the government, our unions, and of course our customers, of course they come last, to enable change quickly and to protect the long-term sustainability of the one price goes anywhere, universal service. To keep the universal service, we have to end universal service on one of the days of a seven-day week. Okay, 
But I have a question for you. Let's say the saving of £225 million a year is made. There's a poorer service, but that's just the trade-off. Where do you think that money is going to go? A better service that's been deteriorating for years, better paid postal workers who've seen their wages hammered, particularly since COVID, or dividends to shareholders and higher executive pay. Now, the experience of privatization suggests the latter. Always. Privatization means a worse service for higher costs. The consumer loses out, the workers lose out, and often the taxpayer loses out too. But Britain's business school execs and shareholders do great, even if that jeopardizes the long-term viability of the organization. After all, Royal Mail is only 400 years old. Who cares if it collapses? It's only an iconic national institution. It only employs thousands of people. You have to wonder how long the scam of privatization can go on. We have the most expensive trains in Europe, but apparently we can't afford to have ticket offices. Meanwhile, the Royal Mail increases the price of a first-class stamp to £1.10, yet apparently we can't afford to have a Saturday post, and one in four letters is late. You pay more for a worse service. That's privatization for you. See how it works? Dan, do you receive many letters these days? I know I would certainly miss out if I wasn't getting deliveries on a Saturday. It's... It's unbelievable what's happened. The universal service obligation is absolutely central to the Royal Mail. And my, actually, my day job has been researching postal workers and um, striking postal workers. And when you look back at the history of the postal service, there's something really profound about the universal service obligation. This idea that everywhere in the UK, with all its, you know, the islands, you know, the rural parts of parts of the country, will receive the sale mail service as the more connected parts of the UK, you know, six days a week. And if you go to the National Mail Museum, you see all the efforts that postal workers have gone to historically to keep delivering the mail in all sorts of weather. You know, they take boats over to islands, you know, and the Royal Mail used to provide things like postal buses, you know, to, to disconnected rural areas. And there's something really important about the figure of the postman in, in, in society, so, you know, especially during the pandemic. People found out that some of the only uh, contact that elderly, vulnerable people will have every day is with a postman. You know, the, the postman play an important sort of sociable uh, community role beyond narrowly you know, just delivering the mail. And what's happened since privatization is is an absolute disgrace. You know, it's been deliberately run down. They prioritized parcels over letters. And as you say, it's an example of you know what Michael Roberts calls disconnected capitalism this idea that you know, no one is benefiting here the consumers are getting a worst a, a worse service workers have, have had have had their pay uh, and conditions absolutely destroyed and the only people who've benefited have been shareholders it's it's day, it really is daylight robbery and the thing is that the, the as with all the recent strike wave the cwu and all the postal workers were saying you know it's not just about uh, preserving our own pain conditions. It's about preserving the public service. It's about preserving the universal service obligation. And right the way through, you know, the, the strike, the, the postal workers were alleging that Simon Thompson and the rest of the Royal Mail uh, board were deliberately trying to run down the universal service obligation. They were trying to make it worse. Um, and they were sort of derided as conspiracy theorists. And now as soon as the, the Royal Mail have essentially won that battle, what do they do? They turn around and they say, oh, yeah, actually, we are going to scrap the universal service obligation, which has been the pillar of the mail service you know, for 500 years or whatever. And it's just, it's just an absolute, absolutely absolute disgrace. Yeah, this whole thing just is, is ridiculous, frankly. Now, the job of the Royal Mail is to deliver letters. And, and their, their argument is, help us deliver letters better by not delivering letters one day a week. I mean, what next? So they're not delivering on Friday. You know, they, they could they, they can make the exact same arguments, can't they? Well, fewer people receive letters than they used to. And Friday, we you know the next day is the weekend. So do you really need to receive a letter on the Friday? Because, you know, it's less likely that you're going to need it for you know the next 24 hours. So let's scrap Friday too. Let's save another 100, 225 million pounds. Again, where does that where do you think that money's going to go? This is the stuff I, I I always say. You know, people talked about, for instance, um, Let's drill for oil and gas in the North Sea. Let's do it. And then let's use the money to help decarbonize the UK. I don't agree with that, but yeah, that's a reasonable point, okay? That's basically what Norway does. Or, or help it pay for pensions with regards to a national investment fund. That's not what's going to happen. We would drill for oil and gas and they'd use the money to scrap inheritance tax. 
they would use the money to, to reduce the top rate of tax. They would use the money to, to give some corporate giveaways to, to financial services. What do you think they're going to do with the money? What do you think they did with North Sea Oil? So this idea that, well, actually, in this privatized business, we're going to scrap this thing, but it means that it's for the greater good. No! It's for shareholder dividends. It's for corporate pay. These people are, are thieves. I use that word metaphorically, of course. Uh, although, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a close shave with some of them sometimes. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'll finish with this on the, on the trains. We have the most expensive train system in Europe, and yet we're told by politicians and privatized rail companies, we can't afford to have ticket offices. How does that make sense? How does the rest of Europe, with cheaper tickets, have ticket offices? How does it work? Well, you know why? It's because we have a system where profits are siphoned off to privately owned interests, who often, by the way, include nationally owned operators in Europe. So you can have publicly owned companies running trains in this country. They just can't be publicly owned by us, the British taxpayer. Crazy, crazy. Crazy. And the, the extraordinary thing is, most of the public knows this. A majority of Tory voters want to see water, rail, energy, and public ownership. But it's locked out of the political conversation by the Uniparty, Labour and the Tories, because they're entirely in hoc to lobbyists. Next story. Britain's security state is covering up the facts about a powerful man accused of pedophilia. This isn't a conspiracy theory, I've not gone full Alex Jones, because such facts are being openly admitted by the government. The news has come from this man, Andrew Lowney. He's a biographer who writes about historical figures, and his previous work has focused on the spy, Guy Burgess, the Mountbatten's, and Edward VIII. His next book is about a living figure, however, namely Prince Andrew. Yet when Mr. Lowney tried to access documents relating to Andrew's business trips between 2001 and 2011, he was told they wouldn't be released by the Foreign Office until 2065. At that point, Andrew will be 105 years old, so it's unlikely he'll be around for their release. Now, these documents from 2001 to 2011 are particularly important because that is when Andrew was the UK's special representative for trade and investment. That role spectacularly ended when he was forced to resign after this photo emerged in 2011. It's a meeting between Andrew and Jeffrey Epstein in New York, shortly after the billionaire had been released from jail for serving an 18-month prison sentence for sexual offenses. At the time, Andrew was also being scrutinized for his friendship with Saif Gaddafi, son of former Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi and Tarek Kaituni, a convicted Libyan arms dealer. Now, the reason for this information not being released, which is when Prince Andrew was allegedly filling a public role, is because freedom of information, FOI laws, FOI laws, don't wholly apply to the royal family. The Telegraph has published part of a letter where the government states its reasoning on this. Some information is being withheld under Section 37, Communication with Her Majesty and Honours, Section 40, Personal Information, and Section 41, Information Provided in Confidence Exemptions. We do not therefore have to apply the public interest test. If there's a public interest, you need to publish the information. So despite Prince Andrew apparently fulfilling public duties, the public don't get to find out what he was actually doing. Okay. Here's what Mr. Lowney told The Telegraph in response. We are in the absurd position that Prince Harry can reveal the most intimate details of royal life from months ago for personal commercial gain and royal households currently brief against each other, yet historians cannot look at files. It is extraordinary that files relating to Prince Andrew, the subject of my next biography, will be closed until 2065. Many questions remain about his role as trade envoy, a public appointment paid for by the taxpayer, and his associations with figures such as Jeffrey Epstein. There is also a strong public interest in knowing, for example, who is paying for his security now that he is no longer a working royal. Elsewhere, Mr. Lowney describes himself as a monarchist, but says, that does not mean I do not believe the royal family should not be subject to scrutiny. He goes on to say this, we need a much more grown-up approach to the release of royal records with the onus on keeping closed only what has to be kept secret to protect national security or on data protection grounds. The delays in release create a vacuum for speculation and fantasists. Their release would go some way to restoring trust in institutions, not least the monarchy. Dan, I found that last part really interesting. The idea that these exemptions actually undermine trust in the royals 
and particularly with a figure like Andrew, because they allow conspiracy theories to flourish. Uh, there's a lot of truth there, isn't there? Well, you can see why conspiracy theories do flourish. You know, you, as you said, you mentioned Alex Jones. I won't get into some of the the more uh, deranged conspiracy theories that Alex Jones pushes about the ruling class. But when the Epstein story broke and when Prince Andrew's implication in it became clear, you know, obviously, if you are conspiratorially minded, this stuff seems to just confirm all your suspicions about the, uh, how to describe it, the nefarious activities of our ruling elites. It's incredibly dodgy. I mean, obviously, there's obvious reasons why that they're not releasing it. Um, but yeah, it's 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 only going to fuel um, conspiracies. Now, Mr. Lowney claims to be a monarchist, though I think writing a book about Prince Andrew at this point probably counts as Republican activism. But that hasn't stopped him making some pretty bold assertions about the consequences of his truth-seeking regarding powerful members of the establishment. Here he is speaking to Talk TV last month, specifically about an FOI request he made for a previous book about the Mountbattens. I put in these subject access requests. Eventually, after some fight, they tried to avoid, uh, when this is a statutory obligation, they tried to avoid giving me this information. But they've now provided several hundred pages, which shows that they were monitoring not just my professional career as a historian, but it talks I gave, I mean, to obscure bookshops and, and, and literary festivals, but also monitoring, for example, um, a defamation case that was brought against me, which I successfully defended, an employment tribunal from a former employee. Uh, why, when do they, why do they, I mean, with the greatest of respect, Andrew, and you're, 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 you're a brilliant uh, biographer, why do they care? I don't know. I mean, ask them. Uh, I mean, I'm only reporting what I found. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, I think they don't like what I do because clearly I write quite critically about the royal family. I've had a long five-year legal fight with the Cabinet Office to release uh, uh, diaries and letters of Lord Mountbatten, which were bought with over £5 million of public money to be opened and were not opened. That was, that was, uh, that was wholly bizarre. I remember this. I remember reading about this at the time, Andrew. You just wanted to write uh, a, a, a very good biography of Lord Mountbatten. There were things that they they, they still decided, despite the fact that this, uh, this person was murdered by the IRA many years ago, despite the fact there had been people convicted of that, they said the case was still open, didn't they? Well, I mean, there's several things here. I mean, the the uh, attempt to get the Mountbatten diaries and letters, which took five years, led to the largest release of FOI material ever, 33,000 pages. But they didn't like that. They they tried to, to, to prevent that material being released. But you're right. I mean, in all my investigations into the death of, of Lord Mountbatten, into what happened with um, Edward VIII, um, documents have been destroyed, often destroyed after I asked for them. Uh, material isn't being deposited in the National Archives as it should. So let's let's just sorry to interrupt you, Andrew, but I just want to make this clear to our viewers and listeners. So there were historical documents that you asked for, and because you asked for them, they were destroyed. And they've admitted that, haven't they? Yes. I mean, one of the things I found in FBI files when I was researching the book was um, interviews that were done with people on Lord Mountbatten going back to 1943, uh, saying that he not only was a bisexual, but he was a paedophile. And in fact, I supported this evidence with interviews I did in the book with two boys who were abused by him. But I then asked for other FBI files on Mountbatten, uh, quoting the various numbers, and was told by the Americans that they had been destroyed. Now, when I asked when they'd been destroyed, they very honestly answered, after you asked for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this has been my experience time and time again. The, the government is trying to shut the stable door after the horse has bolted. Just an extraordinary uh, interview there. And I have to say, you know, people often criticise the, new, the newer media outlets and they say the BBC or high-quality journalism. The BBC would not publish that. When it comes to the royal family, merely seeking to access the facts and tell the truth is seen as an act of political radicalism, potentially even extremism. You cannot do it in the vast majority of legacy media. Dan, that clip, I mean, this whole story is crazy, but that clip was just something else, wasn't it? You know, the idea that he's a, this man, he went to Westminster School, right? One of the most expensive public schools in the country. He claims to be a monarchist. He's a literary agent. He's a biographer. He's just trying to do his job. He's just trying to recount the facts of what's happened. And when that's not particularly comfortable for the powerful, like with the case of the Mountbattens, potentially Lord Mountbatten being a paedophile, uh, or potentially here with regards to Prince Andrew, 
and what he was doing when he was gallivanting at public expense for 10 years between 2001 and 2011. When that's so uncomfortable, well, we just destroy the files when you, when you ask for them. To what extent do you think the, the public knows about this stuff? Because I do feel like there's been a massive kickback, particularly by the BBC, just to basically present all of this kind of stuff. It's just conspiracy theories, you know? And if you, if you call out there, you know, BBC Verify, and you say, well, there probably is something to this, and this doesn't seem like you're in the pursuit of journalistic truth, you get called a conspiracy theorist, right? You're, you're a conspiracy theorist for saying that the people opposing conspiracy theories are doing a bad job, so you really can't win. What's, what's your reading on all this? I'm a bit worried, actually, after watching that clip. But, uh, yeah, I have a lot of... Uh, very interested in conspiracy theories. I won't say I necessarily have a lot of time for conspiracy theories, but as you say, in some ways, it's very naive to dismiss conspiracy theories because when you Google or Wikipedia some of the things that people say, you think, oh, there's actually a lot of truth to this. You know, there's long been accusations that Lord Mountbatten was a paedophile and that the paedophilia, the link between the ruling class and paedophilia, um, well, you know, the, the people let people do their own research, but it really makes for really uncomfortable reading. And in terms of how many people know this, I, I do think that, yeah, there is an assumption that the sort of ruling classes, that the, the royals or sort of certainly the minor royals are sort of corrupt. Um, and I, I think at the moment, the average person has this sort of resigned dislike of not just the royals, but all politicians. You know, that you saw the lady in the caller about um, the education secretary earlier said they're all useless. That's generally what people think. But I think the danger with uh, when you get these exposés of Prince Andrew, if you found his flight logs or looked at his credit cards or things like that, then you start to, you know, you're really risking, you know, mass public anger and disaffection and wrath then. And I think that's why it's obviously easier for them to just say, well, we'll just get rid of these folders um, and files because it's better to be in a situation of sort of mass cynical disengagement and sort of outright um, hostility towards the monarchy, which would happen, you know, if, if these things were released. I think that's right. People point to uh, support for the monarchy, but that's in a very, let's put it politely, managed information environment. Uh, thanks, Dan, for joining me this evening. No, thanks so much for having me on again, mate. And thanks to all of you who have been watching uh, tonight. We are back tomorrow at 6pm. My name is Aaron Bastani. You've been watching Navarra Live. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.